Turning points change the course of our lives. Whether it's a big decision, overcoming an obstacle or tragedy, or taking a leap of faith, these stories of inspiration and resilience are what Turning Point is all about. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of season three of Turning Point. It feels pretty cool uh, to say that I started Turning Point in the winter of 2020, you know, uh, six, eight months into the pandemic, and I didn't really know at the time where it was going to go, what it was going to turn into. Uh, so to be here starting season three is pretty cool. Um, thank you so much to all of you who have been here from the beginning. And also to those of you who are new, welcome to Turning Point. Uh, I'm your host, Priya Sam. And this season, we are so thrilled to have Fanshawe Alumni as one of our sponsors. Again, I graduated from the broadcast journalism program at Fanshawe in 2006. It marked a major turning point in my life. So this partnership is really just so perfect. Perfect. Um, the interview you're about to hear is with another Fanshawe alum, Bridget George. Bridget is an award-winning author and illustrator. Their debut book is a dual language English and Ojibwe children's book called It's a Mitig. You'll find out how it came to be in this interview. It was recorded on Instagram Live in September of 2022. Um, and speaking of incredible alumni, tonight I am thrilled to be joined by Bridget George. Bridget graduated from the graphic design program at Fanshawe College in 2021 and is now an award-winning children's book author and illustrator. Bridget's debut book is a dual language English and Ojibwe children's book called It's a Mitig. Bridget is joining us today from the Kaliwi Circle at Fanshawe College's Institute for Indigenous Learning. And we would like to acknowledge and honor the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Lenape people of Southwestern Ontario as the traditional owners and custodians of the land and waterways where Fanshawe College is located. So I'm just gonna add Bridget here. Here we go. And hopefully we'll see her pop up, uh, Bridget pop up here in just a second. There we go. Hi, Bridget. Hello. Um, you have a beautiful background. I know I mentioned um, that you are at Fanshawe College. Um, is this your first time in that space? It is. I was so excited to pop in and see it in person. I've seen all kinds of videos and it's just, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it looks great. And I'm so glad that you were able to, to join us from there today. Um, so before we get to your turning point, let's go back to your childhood. You grew up in the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe in Kettle and Stony Point First Nation. Can you tell us about your childhood there? Yeah, absolutely. I think before I go into um, my childhood, I think it's super important for me to share a little bit about the history of where I come from. Um, so I grew up on the shores of Lake Huron in Kettle and Stony Point First Nation. Um, and some people might know um, or recognize the name of my community. Um, it's been in the news in the past because of the, um, the military seizure of half of our community, Ajudana, and it being turned into a military base. Um, so it sounds super random, but it does play a huge role in my upbringing and what was um, and how I came to be the person that I am. Um, so, 
Yeah, um, a little bit about my family. My mother is a day school survivor, and my father was also a residential school survivor. And although he hasn't ever explicitly um, said 60s scoop survivor, he was put up for adoption when he was three years old to um, a non-Indigenous family in BC and didn't really ever know where he came from. And yeah, he spent a lot of time in and out of the... Um, the foster system. And when he was 19, my um, paternal grandmother reached out to him and explained um, who he was, where he came from, that he was Anishinaabe. And he moved back to Ontario and started to reconnect with his family, his culture, where he met my mother. And I was born. So I'm the youngest, uh, or sorry, I'm the oldest of four. And um, I was born in 1994, which also feels like kind of an inconsequential thing. But um, if you're familiar with my community at all, you'll know where I'm going with this. So I was born in 1994. And in 1995, um, the OPP murder of Dudley George happened. So I was one year, I was one year old. And my parents often remind me of um, there being a march after um, Dudley was murdered and they pushed me through my in my stroller from um, Kettle Point to the army base or a Judenar community. And again, that seems kind of it's it was a big part of um, me growing up because um, a lot of the media that surrounded the OVP killing of Dudley George um, was of course, very negative. Um, they, t the media took kind of what was um, land defenders trying to protect our traditional territory and um, protecting the rights that were promised to us and put a negative spin on it. So my entire childhood, I grew up reading a lot of um, negative things about land defenders from my community, my community in general. Um, it spun around to First Nations people in general. And yeah, so it's not a great picture. There's a lot of intergenerational trauma in my childhood um, and a lot of dealing with kind of like the racism that centered around the political climate of my First Nations community. Having so much of that happen um, at such a young age, I imagine, I know that story, you know, even though the event happened when you were just a year old, of course, we continue to hear about it um, over the years in, in the news, as you said. So when did you start to realize the impact that that was having on you and, and on how you viewed your community? Um, I, to be honest with you, Priya, I've been on a healing journey for quite some time, and I didn't really make the connection between um, the media representation and what had happened in my community and how that affected me as a person until fairly recently. Um, there, there were a few times where I kind of thought about how um, media portrayal of Indigenous people affected my own self-esteem, but I never really made the connection between um, like the political climate of the commu my community and the community surrounding us and how that affected um, my self-esteem and how I looked at my own indigeneity growing up until fairly recently. And I know we're going to hear more about that when we talk about your turning point. Um, 
So I just want to say hello to everyone who's joining. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm speaking with author and illustrator Bridget George. Um, and this event is sponsored by Fanshawe alumni. Bridget and I are both uh, Fanshawe alum. If you have a question for Bridget, you can put it in the comments. You can use the Q&A feature uh, on Instagram as well. So we're going to get to Bridget's biggest turning point here in just a moment. Um, but you had a, 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 another turning point, not your biggest one, but a, a big one in your life uh, when you were in high school. So tell me what life was like um, for you at that time. I believe this happened when you were 17. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I said, um, the political climate and kind of like the history of my community played a big role in my self-esteem, but it also played a big role in my mental health. Um, so I dealt with a lot of anxiety and depression and things like that growing up. Um, and school was always something that I struggled at. I just feel like um, the way that I learn wasn't really... Um, it didn't fit into the box that was put there by um, my schooling. So um, I actually struggled really hard in um, high school. I had a hard time going to class and <laughs> paying attention. Um, and I actually, because of my poor attendance, was kicked out of my high school at 17. Um, but being my mother's daughter, I was never one to get knocked down and stay down. I decided that um, I wasn't going to let that shape who I turned out to be. And I understood that um, getting a post-secondary education was something that was really important to me. So to do that, I needed to get my high school diploma and I had to take an alternative route. Um, I ended up going and getting my GED at 17. And I... Yeah, I got my GED and I wrapped up and got my secondary school diploma despite um, not getting it in the most traditional way. I'm really glad you shared that part of your story because I think it's something we don't talk enough about, the fact that, you know, traditional education just isn't for everyone, right? I mean, and it doesn't mean you're not smart or, you know, you can't handle a workload. It's just that the education system um, is pretty rigid in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that you just sharing that and obviously, you know, we're going to get to the point of talking about where you are today. Um, but you found a way around that you went back and got your GED. And how did it feel when you when you finished that, you know, after kind of going through this experience of, of, of being kicked out of school and then, you know, making this decision to go back. Honestly, it felt, it felt really good. I, um, I think that there's this notion in education that if you don't fit into the box and you don't um, follow the linear path that's set out in front of you, that you're, you're a failure or maybe you're not as capable as the people who um, are able to follow that linear path. So it felt really validating to me that I was able to um, do that. And it definitely was a big boost in my self esteem too, knowing that, you know, just because I don't learn the same way that other people do doesn't mean that I'm any less intelligent or smart. Yeah, I absolutely. It was just, yeah, you said that so well. And I think I'll, I'm sure people on this uh, who are watching us and joining us right now, I'm sure that resonates because the traditional education system certainly uh, doesn't support everyone. So thank you for sharing that. Um, after you got your GED, um, you were on an education roll here because you end up at Fanshawe College uh, in London, Ontario, where you are right now. You studied graphic design. So what led you to choose that career path? 
So I've, I've definitely always been a creative person. I was always the kid who, when I was visiting family or friends, I was always asking people for um, pencils, paper, pens, whatever I could find to draw. Um, I was always that kid. Um, I remember in kindergarten telling my teachers that I wanted to be an artist and um, eventually that changed into many different things over the years, but definitely always had a creative spirit. And in the times when I was kind of struggling with my mental health in um, my teen years, I definitely leaned on art as a way to express myself. Um, in the space between when I finished my GED and when I um, ended up at Fanshawe, I um, experimented with a lot of things like photography, um, digital art, photo manipulation, things like that. And I started to look for jobs that kind of melded both um, photography and drawing and the creativity that I had while also learning new skills. And I came up with graphic design. And I also learned that Fanshawe's um, graphic design program actually sets them apart from a lot of other schools because you end up with an advanced diploma instead of just a regular two-year diploma. So that definitely appealed to me and I ended up at Fanshawe. So, and tell me about your time at Fanshawe because obviously you spent some time, you know, making this decision about the right program for you. So how did uh, your time there impact you? Um, it impacted me in such a huge way. I think before I um, started school at Fanshawe, I kind of approached my creativity in a really like chaotic way um, where I would just like throw things at a wall and see what stuck and projects would take me so long to complete because I would just kind of like just fly by the seat of my pants. And in my first year at Fanshawe, I was taught um, creative process, which like absolutely rocked my world. <laughs> that Oh, you mean you can actually like sketch things out and plan out a project before you start? So um, learned about the creative process. I learned about the history behind design and art. And I just, I absolutely love that. I feel like it unlocked like a part of my creativity that I didn't have access to before. And the creative process that I learned through Fanshawe, I actually still use um, that same process every single time I approach a new project. So definitely gave me the foundation to be successful in the work that I do now. That's really cool to hear. And you graduated, I mean, just over a year ago. So, um, you know, I know I kind of said at the beginning, you know, you have already published your first book. We're going to get into that um, in a little bit. But um, we talked about this path you took of, you know, getting kicked out of high school um, when you were 17, then going back, getting your GED, then experimenting with different kinds of art. And now you've completed uh, your degree at Fanshawe College. Um, so I imagine there must have been quite a sense of accomplishment at the end of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know I already mentioned like being on a nonlinear education journey. And my time at Fanshawe definitely applies to the whole nonlinear education journey thing as well. Um, I actually I took a pretty big gap between um, <laughs> between I did initially my first year, my second year, the first semester of my third very last year. And then I took quite a big break before I finished off my um, final semester. So I just finished that off. 
Um, it feels super, super, super validating again. Um, it feels really great to go back and finish everything off and make it makes myself feel like I'm capable. And yeah, it's just a really great boost to the self-esteem to go back and finish it off. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and again, just like a reminder to everyone that you don't have to take that kind of like traditional path that, you know, a lot of times we're told, you know, this is the right way to do things there. There just isn't a right way. And sometimes you take a twist and a turn. It doesn't mean you can't um, come back. So I think that's just a good life reminder um, there that you just shared with us. Uh, we have so many people joining us. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining myself um, and Bridget George. Um, this is um, our kickoff to Turning Point Season 3. This interview is sponsored by Fanshawe alumni. Um, Bridget and I both went to Fanshawe College. If you have a question for Bridget, please type it in the comments. You can use the Q&A feature um, at the bottom as well. Okay, I've been teasing your biggest turning point uh, through this whole interview, uh, Bridget. So you have a son named Noah. Uh, Noah is three years old, and your biggest turning point happened when you became a mother. So how did this change your perspective on life? It absolutely changed my perspective in life in every imaginable way. I, um, I've mentioned it before that I feel like the moment that my son was born, I was like born in a completely different person. Um, I thought, I started thinking a lot about um, who I am, the type of um, person that I want my son to be, the things that are important to me. And um, I mentioned um, my childhood kind of uh, affecting my self-esteem a lot. And I started to kind of reflect on that a lot more when my son was born. And I started to think about um, how important it was to me that my son grew up in an environment where he didn't ever have to feel like he was insecure in his indigeneity and that he didn't have to um, hide any pieces of his indigeneity to fit in or feel comfortable um, so I started to kind of think about myself a lot and how I, how I, um, how I viewed my own indigeneity growing up. And it really set me forward on a healing path of my own, which I definitely am no, um, I'm not shy to say that I'm still on. Um, and I also started to, um, think about the role that culture and language plays in self-esteem. And I started to reflect on language so um, I've mentioned a lot um, before to anybody who's ever listened to me talk about anything, um, how much ancestral knowledge and how much of our beautiful culture um, for the Anishinaabe and I guess really any indigenous um, nation is um, held within our languages. And I started to reflect on my own childhood and how I was given the opportunity to learn Ojibwe as a second language through um, elementary school. But because of where I was at with um, my own self-esteem I kind of rejected that I didn't want to absorb the language I wanted to stay um, I want I didn't want to present as indigenous as I really was so um, yeah I definitely missed out on that opportunity and I wanted to make sure that um, my son growing up was able to speak our language and understand our language so uh, huge, huge, huge turning point for me with um, my own healing, with thinking about um, the world that I want my son to live in was absolutely just the moment he was born. And 
this time period obviously was very impactful for you. You also started at this point looking for books um, with positive Indigenous representation. So what did you find? Yeah, um, so I found not a whole lot. <laughs> um, at the time, I I remember the moment that I um, decided that I wanted to write a children's book. Um, I was very pregnant and I was searching for um, books to decorate my son's nursery. And I looked in all of the same places that most mothers would. Um, I looked in chapters, I looked in Walmart, I looked in local booksellers, basically anywhere that sold children's books. And I not only wanted to find books that had indigenous representation, but um, books that had representation specifically for our nation, Anishinaabe, and books that had representation for our language. And I think at the time, there was one book on the shelf that I was able to find. Um, it was actually, funny enough, it was a Robert Munch book that he illustrated with Jay Ojik. It's called Bear for Breakfast. Um, and at the time, it had just come out with a fully um, Anishinaabemwin version, which as someone who is trying to learn my language, I mean, I bought it anyway, but um, as someone who's trying to learn my language, I really struggled to read everything um, in fully fluent Anishinaabemwin. That just wasn't where I was at in my journey. And I kind of started to think about, okay, if I'm at this place where I'm on my healing journey, I am interested in learning my language, I want to instill a love in our culture with my son and I want to learn alongside him. Um, if I'm here, how many other parents are in this exact same spot with me? Um, so I decided in that moment in the chapters, very pregnant, that <laughs> I was going to uh, write my own book with the knowledge that I still had about Anishinaabe and Wen, And I was going to write it in a way that was approachable for people like me who are reclaiming their language with their families. Uh, you know, I what I love about this is that you had this idea and then you actually did it because I can think of so many times when someone said, you know, oh, I should write a book about that. Or, you know, I, I bet somebody else would read this book, but you actually had this idea um, and then and then you ran with it. So once you got this idea, um, what was the next step for you? Um, so I sat down and I um, started writing and I... Um, finished the book fairly quickly. It was actually, it was originally called Bashik Niche and it had a lot of counting in Anishinaabe and when and animals. Um, it was honestly, it was all over the place. <laughs> uh, and I finished it. I looked at it. I read it and was like, this is great. <laughs> and, um, I put together a proposal and I kind of structured it the same way that you would structure like a graphic design proposal for a project. So I explained who I was. I explained uh, what I wanted to do with the book, what inspired me um, and why I felt like a book like this was necessary and needed. And I submitted it to quite a few publishers and I either never heard back from most of them or um, I kindly enough got rejection letters from a few. Um, and that was the first round of submitting it. And then there was a second round where I was like, okay, I'm gonna submit it to some more publishers. If I don't hear back from anybody after this round, that's all good and fine. I'm just going to print it myself. I'm going to um, self-publish it 
or I'll just print out copies of it and I'll give it to uh, friends and family and we'll keep it as a keepsake. This is some serious determination, obviously. You know, you send out the proposal the first time, you're now sending out this second round, and then you get a phone call that changes everything. So tell me about that. Yes, so um, definitely one of my all-time favorite memories. Um, so I remember the moment that I, um, so just to, just to preface, uh, while I was waiting for uh, to hear back from publishers, hopefully, I was refreshing my email so often. I'm honestly <laughs> surprised that I didn't leave like a mark all the way down my phone from how often I was just like pulling <laughs> to check my yep. email. Um, so we were on our way to, um, we meaning my husband, um, Noah and I, were on our way to visit my family and I, refreshed my email for probably the 10,000th time that day. <laughs> and I had an email from a publisher, um, Douglas and McIntyre, which is a great indie publisher in BC, um, letting me know that they wanted to give me an offer on my book and asked me to give them a call. And I remember this moment so vividly because we were driving down the road to my parents' house and I asked my husband to pull over the car because <laughs> I was just so excited so we could both like freak out about it and uh, I had like baby Noah in the backseat he was I think he was three months old so tiny little baby in the backseat we're all like pulled over on the side of the road freaking out everybody's like happy it was just one of the most like exciting moments of my life oh I'm like feeling the excitement <laughs> over here just hearing this do you remember like do you have any idea how long you were sending out proposals or and how like how long this period of time was before sending out that first proposal to this phone call um oh my gosh it was quite a while i yeah. know that um i waited from the first time that i sent out proposals to the second proposal or sending out the second round of proposals to publishers i believe that was about four months in between there and I think it was about three months from the time that I sent out the second proposals and heard back from my publisher and I think in total from the time that I was pregnant in the chapters and was like super ready to um submit proposals I honestly I wrote the book really fast and put the proposal together really fast so that probably was like maybe three weeks wow Oh, that must have, yeah, that, that phone, getting that phone call must have been amazing. And if, if you are, anyone watching and listening is wondering what happened next, we're going to get to that. Um, but I do just want to say thank you all so much for joining us. I think we have people from all over the country and I've seen some people from other parts of, uh, of the world joining us as well. So thank you all so much for being here. Um, um, Bridget and I are both Fanshawe alumni and we're learning more about Bridget's story from uh, becoming a, a graduate of the graphic design program at Fanshawe College uh, to publishing a children's book called It's a Mittig. It is a dual language English and Ojibwe book. Okay, so now we've got to the point where you get this phone call from the publisher. And I know you kind of teased this earlier. You mentioned that the book had all kinds of different ideas in it. So what happened once you started working with this publisher? Um, so the very first step was I had an editor assigned to me um, and the editor worked with me back and forth to kind of <laughs> make it a little bit less chaotic. Um, and while we were editing, we came up with the idea of having the 
um, English words rhyme with the Anishinaabemwin, which was a very, very difficult thing to do, as you can imagine, rhyming two languages, not to mention an indigenous language that has a completely different vowel system, pronunciation system than English. Um, so we had initially edited the book down um, to be in kind of like a riddle format. And then um, after we had done that, we came up with the idea to make things uh, rhyming with English and Ojibwe, which is an absolutely brilliant idea. It honestly, I wish <laughs> I wish books like that existed when I was learning in school, but it made things so much easier. Um, and we went through quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of rounds of editing uh, just the English and kind of like the idea of the book. And then after we had finished that, there was a second editor who helped us out, um, Margaret Noden, who is an Anishinaabe and one teacher at, uh, I believe it's the University of Wisconsin or yeah, University of Wisconsin, um, went through and edited the Anishinaabe and one for us just so that the uh, spelling was a little bit clearer and from the same dialect because um, where my uh, First Nation community is situated, um, there's actually quite a bit of Anishinaabe people that are also from the northern United States. So the dialect in my community can get kind of mixed between the two. So uh, yeah, we edited the book and that took about, I want to say six or seven months. And then after that came the illustrations, which were also me. This is the part of the process, like if you've never gone through it, you just have no idea, right? How long it takes, like six or seven months to edit and then and then yes you also did the illustrations like in a traditional setting someone's writing the book and someone else is doing the illustrations but you did this all yourself so tell us about that part of the process and really bringing this to life it's a beautiful book visually as well thank you so much um so the illustration process wasn't um that much of a surprise for me as the editing and writing portion was um the project was approached pretty similar to sim pretty similarly to how we were taught to approach projects in school so that wasn't a shock and like i said the publisher that ended up picking up the book is a wonderful um canadian indie publisher uh, so i was absolutely blessed to um be able to be given a lot of creative control over the visuals of the book so that was great um but just what the process looks like for anybody who might be interested in how book illustration works is um i went through the manuscript itself and kind of tried to figure out what I was going to draw there. I'll usually make notes, so um, heavy focus on the animals and nature words that you're learning. Um, and then you do something like a storyboard. So you break down what words are going to end up on which page and do sketches for what you're going to draw for each page. And then once that is approved, I went in and started doing final illustrations. And the illustration portion of the book actually took like considerably less time than the editing. Um, I think the illustrations in total were finished in about four months, which in comparison to the illustrations that I'm doing now for other storybooks is actually like an amazingly short amount of time to have an entire children's book illustrated in. Yeah. And do you think some of that was because you already had these ideas floating around in your head as you were writing the book? 
Oh, absolutely. I think when I take on other projects, that's the part that takes the most amount of time for me is trying to figure out and visualize what I'm going to draw to tell this story visually. But because it was my own book, pretty much from the start writing out the manuscript, I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to draw here. This is what I'm envisioning. So it was a lot easier to kind of roll with that. You mentioned earlier how, um, a, you know, the, a lot of the inspiration for this book came from your own journey and looking for um, books for Noah's nursery, being able to show um, not just positive uh, Indigenous representation, but also to, to learn your, to teach uh, Noah your language. So um, as you were going through this process, and then once the book was out, what did you hear from people who were reading your book and buying your book? Oh my gosh. Um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because it just like, I feel like anytime I talk about it, it just like absolutely warms my heart. Um, so a lot of the feedback that I got was from other families that were in the exact same position as me. Um, people whose parents were um, day school survivors or residential school survivors who um, weren't raised with their language or um, even people who were 60 scoop survivors and um, we're working on reconnecting with their identity, their language, getting to know their communities, and talking about how um, accessible it made the language to them, which is exactly what I intended to do. Um, and I think I one of the things that impacted me the most was definitely hearing from other parents um, that it made them feel less intimidated to learn the language alongside their children because I think that that's one of the best gifts that Noah has given me um, in kind of starting my healing journey is being able to learn alongside him is is such an honor and to hear from other parents that are on that same journey it really it not only warms my heart but it gives me this really beautiful sense of community and it gives me a great amount of pride and like just other Anishinaabe parents knowing that there are so many people that are on that same learning journey and that same healing journey and that there's all of these wonderful beautiful little Anishinaabe babies that are growing up with their parents teaching them their language so I think it's just it's great. That's incredible. And to know that this all started from a place where you were kind of feeling a little bit alone too, right? Not knowing, you know, are other people feeling the same way as me? And now you've created this book that is connecting all of these people who are in the same position and also encouraging them to, to learn their language as well. Yeah, that's really cool. Wow. Um, so this is, this is your first book. Certainly far from your last. You've already got so many exciting projects uh, in the work, um, in the works. I'll let you, I'll let you tell me about what you're, uh, what you're working on next. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of mentioned that um, the way that I illustrated It's been taken the timeline that the book came out with um, was actually pretty short in comparison to projects I've been working on. So um as of right now, I have um, finished one children's book that will be out in August 2023. Um, it's written by Carol Lindstrom, who is a New York Times bestselling author, which is so cool for me. Um, she authored um, the award-winning book, um, We Are Water Protectors, about Standing Rock First Nation. Um, so it's an absolutely beautiful book. It was illustrated by Michaela Goad, and it actually won a Caldecott medal, um, I think it was last year, which is such a huge 
huge honor for that book. It's just, I can't speak enough glowing things about this book. It's so beautiful. Um, so I have the honor of illustrating her follow-up book to that. It's called Autumn Peltier Water Warrior. And it is about Autumn Peltier and Josephine Mandaman and the connection between um, Anishinaabe Kweso, Anishinaabe women and um, water. So it's a really, really beautiful book. Um, I also have another book that I'm about to wrap up that is a Tragically Hip Children's ABC book, which is so incredibly cool. I'm one of four co-illustrators on it, and that one will be out in, I believe it is October 23. And what else do I have? In November... I'll have a really big project coming out. I was able to illustrate all the collateral graphics for the Walt Disney Company's um, Native American Heritage Month program. So um, in November, all of those graphics will be out. And I am also illustrating a few other projects that haven't been announced yet for other Indigenous authors. So there's quite a bit coming out uh, from me in terms of projects in the next year or so. That's all exciting. And tell me about the Tragically Hip project. Like, how did that happen? Um, it's actually, it's, it kind of came about in a really, again, non-traditional way. Um, the gentleman who wrote it reached out and um, kind of explained his idea. Um, it, he didn't have a publisher quite yet, but I was like, oh my gosh, a Tragically Hip children's book absolutely sign me up. I don't care if you don't have a publisher. I want to do it. <laughs> and, um, eventually he did find a publisher. It's going to be um, coming out via Tundra. Um, so a really great Canadian publisher. And um, there were also another um, three illustrators who were brought onto the project too. So everybody has their own set of letters and everything is structured by a tragically hip song. So it's, it's really cool to kind of see how the project has come together because everybody's interpretation of the songs is different. And I think it's going to be a really, really cool project once it's all put out and put together. That is incredible. Wow. Um, one of the things I loved um, about, so for me, when I was doing research about you, of course, I went to Google um, and I came across a YouTube video of you actually reading It's a Mittig. Um, so for anyone who wants to get a closer look at the book, it's a great, um, it's a great way to do that. And uh, just hearing you read it was really cool as well. Um, so I, I guess I'm as I was doing that, I was wondering when you were putting the book out, like, did you envision any of these things that were going to happen after, or were you just really focused on that one project? I honestly was just really focused on getting it done and having it in my hands. And of course in Noah's nursery, so I can read to him. Um, but I was honestly, I was really taken aback by the response, especially from um, non Anishinaabe uh, community members and just kind of people out in the world. Um, the reason being is when I wasn't hearing back from publishers, I mentioned that I got a few rejection letters. And one of the rejection letters that I got was actually, I mean, it's its super rare to get a rejection letter from a publisher when you're kind of like cold querying them because most of the time you just won't hear back. Um, so I kind of took it as a positive that I got a rejection letter, but <laughs> needless to say, um, one of them said that they just didn't see a market for the type of book that I was putting out um which 
although really harsh feedback to hear when you're trying to like chase down this dream. Um, I honestly, I thought that that was really valid feedback because there aren't very many um, Anishinaabe speakers. And I started to kind of think like, okay, what if people aren't actually interested in something like this at all? So when it came out and I started to get messages and I started to hear from um, not just non-Anishinaabe community members, but um, non-native people that um, they really enjoyed reading the book. It was so fun and hearing from teachers that they um, were using the book as kind of like a way to open up um, dialogue in their classroom about Indigenous communities and language and the reason that a book like that has to exist and is important was um, it was really great. So it honestly a lot of it did take me by surprise. Yeah because you were so focused on like your purpose for for writing this book which was for your family, but also, of course, you know, with the idea that other people would, would be interested for a similar reason as you. But yeah, that's something you would probably like, I wouldn't have thought of that, that, you know, a teacher might use this in their classroom. That's, yeah, that's, that's very cool. So as you're looking at the projects that you're working on now, have you, have you been thinking about any of those uh, kind of additional ways that the, the books might be used? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the, one of the big ones is, um, so it's, <laughs> I haven't announced it yet, but I'll talk about it here. Um, so I have a book that I have the honor of illustrating that, um, it actually probably won't be out until 2024. Um, it's going to be published by an American publisher. Um, it is basically a land acknowledgement book. So it talks about, um, how important it is to think about how, um, how we've come to be and the places that we are and, um, the circumstances of that, the treaties that, um, have played a role in us being able to occupy the spaces that we're in, which I feel like is super groundbreaking, especially for an American publisher, because, um, you know, over here, north of the medicine line in Canada, um, we do land acknowledgements, and those are pretty commonplace, but in the States, that's not really something that's done over there, so um, that will be out in 2024, and that's definitely a big one that I've... Um, I've thought a lot about how much of an impact that's going to make in especially places like classrooms. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I know we talked about you studying graphic design um, at Fanshawe College, but when you were doing that, did you have any idea that you might end up working on projects like this that would, um, you know, be so impactful, not just through the art and the beauty of them, but also just through the content and the education that they're providing? Honestly, I I didn't really anticipate my career and my education taking me where it has. It was really just kind of like a natural flow of things and creating things out of necessity and need, which I feel like is something that um, creative people should do more often because I feel like if you're creating out of a place out of a place for um, room for your passions, you're always going to create something beautiful and useful. Yes, that, yeah, that is really good advice. And you might not know it at the time. And it sounds like for you also, you were very open to the possibilities and to just saying like, you know, this, yes, like this feels like something I want to do. So I'm going to do it. And then, you know, all of these other things sort of sprouted off of that. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I've tried to kind of guide my career around, um, 
like heart guided creativity. And if something feels um, powerful and important to me, I will definitely take the project on. Um, something that I, I was signed to an agency about a year ago. And I think that's something that my, my agent might not like the most is me, regardless of budget, if something speaks to me, I'm going to do it. But also if something doesn't um, feel like it's a fantastic fit for me as an artist, I'm totally comfortable passing up projects too, which I feel like leads to um, making sure that all the work that I do is meaningful uh, for me. Yeah. And, you know, earlier we talked about um, during your childhood and, you know, seeing a lot of negative uh, representation of, of the of Indigenous communities in the media. And I know you mentioned, you know, you're still on this this healing journey, but where are, would you say you are now? And, you know, how is your um, has your view and your perspective changed? It's honestly it's it's done a complete turnaround. Um, I went from being a child or a teenager rejecting my indigeneity, um, trying to like shrink that part of myself to be as um, to not be as visible to being super proud about it. Um, I always make sure that my son knows who who he is, where he comes from, um, who his family is. Um, and I, I just, I honestly, I feel really proud of myself for how far I've come in my journey. Um, I, especially in learning my language, I mentioned how much of our knowledge is held within our languages. The more I learn about, um, Anishinaab and when, and the more Anishinaab Anishinaab and when I learn, uh, the more rooted I feel like I become in my identity and understanding where I fit in in the world. So yeah, I definitely feel like my journey has come a really, really long way. It's really great to hear that. And also to hear that you're amplifying that knowledge and, and that message as well through, through your work and through your literature, through your books, um, and through your family as well, through your son, who's going to grow up with this um, kind of beautiful view on, on your culture and with the language as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely a big point of pride for me. Yeah. You know, so much has happened since your biggest turning point. It was just over three years ago when uh, Noah was born. So as you reflect back, uh, what would you say stands out the most to you? I would definitely say, um, like I said, the transformation of like doing doing work to do creative work versus where I am now and doing um, heart guided work. I feel like there's a lot more meaning in the things that I am making and creating. And um, yeah, I, I feel like that's such a hard question to answer because there's like, there's so many things like the, the way my life has changed in the last three years is just, it's like uncomprehendable for me. Like there's that, there's my own healing journey. There's the pride in raising a child who is so secure in his identity. And um, there's just, there's no one thing that I can really like answer that question with because there's just so much that I'm proud of that I feel like all came from that turning point. Yeah. And, you know, I think you really, um, when you said, uh, when we were talking about the turning point and you said it was like a rebirth of sorts, like what you just described there is exactly that. I mean, it, 
like you said, it really just impacted and changed uh, every part of your life. And I think that's pretty awesome now to see like where you are now and, and what you're doing with it. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, again, exactly like you said, just to echo it, it really does feel like I, it was like a rebirth moment for me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My, sorry, my light is doing something, <laughs> something weird over here. Here we go. Um, so Bridget, we do have some audience questions that I would love to get to here. Um, somebody yeah. asked for anyone who has never written a book before, do you have any advice about where to start? And I'm going to fix Absolutely. my light while you answer that. And I think while you're fixing that, before I answer that question, I think I just need to plug the laptop in. It's got a low battery and I don't want to cut out here while I'm answering yeah, sure. the question. Um, okay. looks like I got some help doing that. So I'll answer okay, the question perfect. while that's happening. Um, can you just repeat it for me? Yes. Yeah. For anyone who has never written a book before, do you have any advice about where to start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say from my own experience um, and what took me the longest with writing a book is to make sure that you have a really good um, outline for what you want to do with your book and what you want to accomplish, not just with the story, but um, start to think about who you um, envision purchasing your book. Um, what does that person look like? What would they want to read? And um, use that to kind of like shape your creative process. And also um, publishers really want to hear that from you. They want to know that you've thought about um, where your book is going to be picked up by people, um, what your goal is. So I would say that that's a really big one is um, think about what you want to accomplish with your book and use that to shape your creative strategy. That's great advice. This next question is, how can non-Indigenous families introduce Indigenous culture to their children? That is a great question. Um, so I think depending on who you ask, you're going to get um, a huge gamut of different answers. Um, my suggestions would be... Um, depending on your children's age. If you have um, younger children, I think there's a lot of children's books out there, um, not just mine, but mine's pretty great, um, <laughs> that talk about um, Indigenous cultures in a really accessible, age-appropriate way. Um, another great way is to um, show your children Indigenous cultures in person. Um, there's all kinds of um, Indigenous communities around London. And if you're um, anywhere else, there, I'm sure there's an Indigenous community close by. Um, powwows in the summertime are open to anybody. And it's a really great way to um, expose your children to Indigenous cultures in a respectful way. And also the MCs at powwows are always great for uh, explaining the stories behind certain things as well. Um, and if you have older children who um, maybe a little bit more open to kind of like tough conversations. It is always really great to, again, talk about the circumstances that have brought your family to be able to live the place that you're living. So um, taking it further than pushing past a land acknowledgement and talking about things like um, what treaties allow um, your city or your town to be on the land that it's on. If there are treaties that um, aren't being honored that allow your town or city to be sitting on the town that it's on, talking about that. So I think that treaty education is something that um, we could be talking about with children that are able to absorb that information. So that would definitely be my suggestion. 
Yeah, so much around education. I think that, yeah, that's all really important. Thank you so much. I think we'll definitely include some of that and um, some links to some of the resources that you mentioned as well in um, in the show notes of the podcast as well. Um, Bridget, this other question is about something you mentioned early on, just about a lot of the, um, the negative representation of Indigenous communities that you grew up seeing. Um, do you, so it's kind of two parts, do you feel like the um, representation has improved since then? And what do you think the media can do to improve this? I know that's a lot of a loaded question for you. So just kind of from your perspective, what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I feel like it is very much a yes and no question. Um, do I feel like media representation has improved since I was younger? Yes. Um, if we're talking about news media, Mm. If we're talking about um, media like film and TV, absolutely. I feel like especially in the last few years, there's been a lot of um, media content created by Indigenous writers and um, that include Indigenous cast and crew. And that absolutely is a huge improvement over uh, the types of media that I grew up seeing because that did not exist. And the um, Indigenous cast in films and movies that did exist um, definitely weren't written in an authentic, positive way. So in that way, I would definitely agree that, yes, Indigenous uh, representation has improved. Um, in terms of, like, news media, I absolutely think that there is still definitely work to be done. Um, even simple changes like the verbiage that the media uses to discuss um, issues that relate to Indigenous communities or even positive stories about Indigenous communities could definitely use some work. Um, a big one is, while I'm, while I'm here talking about it, I won't, <laughs> I won't stick to this for too long because I could talk about this forever, um, but especially using um, verbiage like when we talk about um, Indigenous communities and their land defenders, a lot of the time we hear things like um, protesters but in our communities, we refer to those people as land defenders because that's what they are doing is they're protecting, um, they're protecting our treaty rights. They're protecting um, indigenous traditional uh, territories. And it really gets spun in a negative way when people talk about land defenders or water protectors as protesters, because at the end of the day, they really aren't protesting, they're protecting. And I think small changes like that are things that definitely need to be worked on. So there's our yes and no kind of answer. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I know that was that was a big question. So thank you. Um, I love this next question. Um, for for people who um, don't know much about Anishinaabe culture, what is something that you would like everyone to know? Ooh, that is a great question. Um, a big question. There's there's so much. There's so much. And there's so much beautiful things about my people that I would love to share. Um, I'm going to kind of take that question and like flip it a little bit and um, say that the biggest thing that I would want people to know is that um, we are our own nation. I think a lot of times people look at Indigenous communities and Indigenous, na Indigenous nations as kind of like this monolith and tend to like 
pan indigenize all indigenous nations as like, oh, just indigenous people. But the thing is, is there's so many different nations within Canada and even just like where we are right now in southwestern Ontario. And each of those nations are so unique and they're so beautiful in their own unique ways. And there's so many different things about each of those nations, too, that set them apart from each other. And while there are um, overarching themes and there is like a circular Indigenous worldview and there are similarities between nations and um, especially nations that are super close together geographically, um, we all are so unique and different. So I guess that's that's my answer is that um, Anishinaabe people are beautiful we are distinct and yeah I think that's a great reminder too because you're right and I think this is something we see in the media a lot is sort of like this overarching like you like you said sort of just grouping all indigenous nations um together and this goes back to you know what you mentioned about doing the education and attending events and learning more um about about different cultures so um thank you for that um Bridget, I know I mentioned earlier people can watch you read It's a Mythic on YouTube, but um, tell everyone where can they find your book and where can they keep up with you and, you know, follow along with all of these projects that you have on the go? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find It's a Mythic at Chapters, Indigo, all major booksellers, but I would particularly love it if you are interested in picking up the book at all. If you purchase it from your local indie bookstore or you purchase it from goodminds.com, which is an Indigenous-owned and operated bookstore that stocks um, all Indigenous-created authored, illustrated books. So they're a really great place to go. If you want to pick up the book, definitely pick it up from them. Um, and if you want to keep up with me online and all of the wonderful things I'm doing, um, I am most active on Instagram. So my Instagram is at Bridget, my first name, S-I-O-L-N. And you can find more of my work on my website at BridgetGeorge.com. Amazing. Bridget, thank you so much for sharing your turning points, for sharing your whole story and um, your perspective. I'm so, I feel so lucky that I got to meet you um, and to hear all of this. And I just can't wait to continue to follow you and to see what you do next. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here and get to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. And a huge thank you to Fanshawe alumni for sponsoring this event this evening. Um, Bridget and I, of course, are both uh, Fanshawe alum. For those of you who maybe just joined in the last few minutes, you want to catch the rest of the interview, we are going to be posting this full interview as episode one of season three of Turning Point. So you'll be able to find that on my YouTube channel and on any podcast platforms. Uh, just search for Turning Point with Priya Sam. So thanks again, everyone. Have a great night. And Bridget, thank you again. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thanks so much, Priya. Bye, everyone. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to have Bridget as a guest and to have Fanshawe alumni sponsor our event. We will have more of these live virtual events throughout the year. If you follow me on social media at Priya Sam, I'll be posting about them as they come up. In the meantime, if you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll leave us a five-star review. You can follow the show on your favorite podcast app. You can subscribe on YouTube. Thank you again so much for joining us. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and of each other.